Well, now I invite you to open your Bibles with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And this morning we'll be looking at the first three verses, which again uh, continues the theme of the coming of the Lord. That has been uh, one of the major themes in both 1 Thessalonians and also in 2 Thessalonians. So let me uh, begin by reading. I'll actually read the first four verses. But we'll focus uh, most of our attention on, uh, on verse 1. So the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, has written this for the edification of his church. So may God bless the reading of his word. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure, or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction." who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And I'll just stop there. May the Lord bless again the reading of His Word. Well, we've come to a very uh, important uh, chapter in the realm of eschatology or the study of the end times. And along with uh, Jesus' Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24 and the book of Revelation, this chapter gives us a lot of information on the events preceding the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now obviously this is a very challenging passage as all eschatology is within the, the body of Christ. There are many different opinions, many different interpretations And I'm going to uh, give to you what I think is the best understanding of these passages, realizing that many people who love the Lord uh, will hold to other positions than uh, the one that that I personally hold to. And uh, we we generally teach within the church. But uh, what Paul is talking about is the coming of the Lord, verse 1, our gathering together to Him in the day of the Lord, in verse 2. And all of these uh, are going to, uh, to be a matter of, of interpretive uh, challenge to us. But uh, what Paul is very clear, what he emphasizes in verse 3, that these things will not happen until the apostasy occurs first. And we'll study later on what that involves. And as well as the appearance of the man of lawlessness, who most identify as the Antichrist, the end-time Antichrist. Now again, the preterist position will be different, and we'll kind of touch on some of the different views as we work through the passage. But uh, all of these are issues that should be of concern to the church. We want to correctly understand what God means by this, what the Apostle Paul is teaching and uh, so, so it will be a, a passage that will certainly uh, be challenging to try to, to grab our, our, wrap our minds around, but uh, we'll give it our best, our best shot. So to begin with, Paul is addressing a concern, another misinterpretation of what uh, people understand to be the end times. He dealt with uh, one in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when they were, they were disturbed, they were anxious, they were troubled because they thought that their friends who had died in Christ would miss out on the glory of Christ's return. So he clarified that misunderstanding in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now he's dealing with a different misunderstanding of the things that he had previously taught them. So let's begin reading again in verse 1. He says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ 
and our gathering together with Him, to Him, that would be the rapture that He mentioned back in 1 Thessalonians 4, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. That these things have already happened. And somehow some of them were beginning to believe that these things had already happened. The day of the Lord had already come. And so they're, they're, it's, it's affecting the way they're living and obviously the way they're thinking. And so they were, Paul was concerned that they were being quickly shaken and disturbed by thinking that the day of the Lord has already come. The idea here of being quickly shaken and disturbed just means that they were agitated of mind. They were mentally alarmed. They were unstable. And that word for shaken can refer to a, a, a ship at sea that's just tossing and turning because of the waves. It's not tied on to the, to the dock. And so this is the impact of this false thinking about the return of the Lord thinking that it had already happened. The day of the Lord had already come. Now, we have to ask ourselves, okay, well, what does, in verse 2, what does Paul mean when he speaks of the day of the Lord? Because the, the false teaching was that it has already come. So, what is the day of the Lord? Well, again, uh, there is some evidence in the New Testament that some were associating the day of the Lord with uh, the bodily resurrection and they were denying a future bodily resurrection associated with the day of the Lord. So some were saying it's already come. It's already come. That resurrection has already come in a spiritual realm. So we don't look forward to any bodily future physical resurrection when Christ comes back. We've already experienced the spiritual resurrection and that's what Paul meant. Or something like that. That's why, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul addresses that issue with the Corinthian church. He says, "And Now if Christ is priest that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So some within the church were denying a future bodily resurrection of the dead. Probably thinking that our spiritual resurrection is what Paul had in mind. They were misinterpreting Paul's teaching. Paul goes on to say, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your preaching is vain and your our preaching is vain and your faith also is vain. So in effect, Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead, that He will come again when all saints will be bodily raised from the dead. Some of them were denying that future resurrection when the coming of the Lord takes place and the day of the Lord arrives. So that could be one of the issues that's being addressed in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. That some were saying that there's no future bodily resurrection. Interesting, this same error was being propagated in Ephesus when the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy. Timothy was at, in the city of Ephesus. And he's talking about men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. So the same idea, the same wrong teaching was found in Ephesus that some were saying the resurrection had already taken place. Now they're probably not thinking in terms of a physical resurrection. Obviously then they all missed out on it, right? But they're probably understanding that the resurrection Jesus talked about and Paul talked about was a, bodily, uh, was a spiritual resurrection. And they're saying the spiritual resurrection has already taken place. There's no bodily resurrection to look forward to. That's not going to take place. So they were denying the resurrection even in Ephesus as well. 
It's already taken place. And the only resurrection of you would probably be the spiritual resurrection of regeneration. And that fulfills all the prophecies of the resurrection. It's all spiritual. So that could very well be uh, part of the idea here that, uh, that Paul is addressing. Now several other things uh, about this is that others would say that the day of the Lord actually involves ushering in a tribulation period that occurs before the day of the Lord occurs. So the day, well, actually the day of the Lord includes a tribulation period. So let me correct that. That's another possible view that some people think Paul has in mind. But notice that view really doesn't fit. The day of the Lord doesn't include a tribulation period with it. Because even in 2 Thessalonians 2, the Apostle Paul says there are things that have to happen before the day of the Lord. You have to have the apostasy, you have to have the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist has to come, has to be the great deception, the great falling away, and then the day of the Lord. So the tribulation really does not seem to be a part of the day of the Lord. Uh, Paul actually clarified this back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Notice what he says here. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And he comes as a thief in the night for unbelievers, not for believers. We're watching and waiting. But for unbelievers, the day of the Lord comes and catches them off guard like a thief in the night. But that's only for unbelievers. And then in verse 3 he says, For while we, we are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains. So the day of the Lord comes suddenly and it brings destruction, sudden destruction on unbelievers. So it doesn't include a drawn out tribulation period and then the destruction. No, when the day of the Lord comes, it comes suddenly, quickly, and it's judgment on the unbelievers. That's the day of the Lord. So it's identified with the second coming. It does not include a tribulation period before. And that's, so the misunderstanding was at Thessalonica, some of the believers said, well, we're going through tribulation. So the day of the Lord must have come because we're in this tribulation period and then eventually the Lord will actually come physically. But that's not what Paul teaches. No, when the day of the Lord comes, it comes suddenly and it's destruction on the unbelievers. So it doesn't include a tribulation period. So one of these views may very well have been what, uh, what was being held and propagated within the church uh, there in Thessalonica. And also just notice it is the day of the Lord. It's not the months of the Lord or the years of the Lord or the period of the It's the day of the Lord. That is a day when Christ comes back. So even the language, the day of the Lord, doesn't support the idea that the day of the Lord is elongated by this preceding period of tribulation. But that's probably what some had held to or the idea there's no bodily resurrection at all. So we don't know for sure exactly uh, what their view is. But So what is Paul's answer? Well, his answer is going to be that uh, there are certain signs that have already taken place before <clears throat> that must take place before the day of the Lord actually comes. And he says in verse 3, and I've, let me see if I can find the right there it is that before the day of the lord comes the apostasy must come first and then the man of lawlessness or the antichrist has to be revealed then after that comes the day of the lord so that's his answer don't be agitated and concerned thinking the day of the lord has already come don't think that your tribulation that you're going through is a part of the day of the lord and so the lord is going to be coming back very 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 soon because there are certain things that have to take place before the day of the Lord comes. There has to be a great climactic apostasy and the man of lawlessness has to be revealed. Those have not happened yet, so the day of the Lord has not come yet. 
that's kind of his his argument here. But if you look, um, <clears throat> if you go back to verse uh, two, where did these false views of the day of the Lord come from? Well, Paul specifies a potential of three sources. He says, don't be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us. So somehow, people were coming into the church saying, the day of the Lord's already come. We don't look forward to this in the future. And it could come either by way of a spirit, which could refer to a word of prophecy that some prophet was claiming and preaching, the day of the Lord's already come. So it could have been a prophet, maybe that's the reference to the Spirit here. Or a message, or a letter as if from us, Paul says. So someone could be in the church and say, well, you know, I was talking to Paul uh, before he left, and, and he told me this is what he meant. The day of the Lord is now here. It's already come. Or... Someone says, I read a letter that Paul sent to another group and and he said the day of the Lord has already come. So Paul is saying, look, there's these different forgeries out here. Some imposters claiming that this is what we taught, but it's not what we taught. But they're claiming it comes from us. So again, these were uh, deceivers. These were imposters. These were forgeries if it was a letter. didn't actually come from Paul. And so the false teachers were claiming apostolic authority for their false teaching that the day of the Lord has already come. It's interesting that this prompts the Apostle Paul to address the potential for forgeries and misrepresenting him later on in this letter. In verse 15, In chapter 2, he says, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught. Now notice what he says, whether by word of mouth you heard it directly from me speaking it to you, or by letter, a confirmed authentic letter from us. Don't trust hearsay reports about what we taught. Don't trust traditions where someone says, I heard Paul say. No, you get it directly from us. Don't trust anything else. That's what he's emphasizing in verse 15. And then in verse 17, to prevent forgeries of other letters... He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. So he probably wrote his signature maybe like a doctor. You know, it's a scribble. You can't really read it. But they would say, oh, that's Paul's signature. So now we know this letter actually came from Paul. Because other people would say, well, this is a letter from Paul But if it didn't have that special signature or that writing from Paul on there that was probably unique, then they would know it's a forgery. So it's just kind of interesting how Paul is uh, addressing this. And again, he says that, uh, no, the day of the Lord has not come. It's still future because the uh, apostasy hasn't happened and the man of lawlessness has not been Revealed yet. Okay, so let's go back to verse 1 again. Because there's another issue here. Now, in in light of this overall context of Paul correcting some people, some false teachers, he says in verse 1, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. So that would be, almost everyone understands this is the rapture of the church that Paul dealt with back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So the issue that's raised, because later on Paul's going to talk about the Antichrist and the great apostasy and all these things that people are always interested in learning more about, you know, and they've speculated about uh, who's the Antichrist and all these things. But the issue that's raised in verse 1 is Paul's reference to the rapture. So the key question is, Does Paul think that the church will go through this tribulation period where the Antichrist is there and all that's going on takes place during that period? Or 
will the church be raptured up before the tribulation period occurs? Now, that was what I originally held as a believer, went to seminary that championed that view. And there's a lot of different opinions on these things for sure. And not everyone in our own church agrees. But let me tell you uh, some reasons again why I personally uh, once used to be a pre-trib rapture advocate that the church will not go to the tribulation. We'll never see the Antichrist on earth because we'll be raptured up before the tribulation. And I've left that view and I now believe that the rapture will occur in conjunction with the second coming. The church will go through the tribulation as sobering as that idea is. So there's a number of, um, of reasons for why uh, I hold that particular uh, view now. And I want to just kind of walk through some of them with you. First off, if you, uh, if you look at 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 and 2, you have three main expressions here. You have the coming of the Lord. You have the gathering together to Him. And then you have the day of the Lord. And when you read through those verses, I think the, the normal way to understand it is that all of these three things happen at the same time. There's no idea that verse 1 is being separated from verse 2 by seven years. A seven year tribulation period. So let me just read it again and just follow along that he's talking about the one same event. So verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together to Him, that would be the rapture, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So the day of the Lord seemingly is identified with the coming of the Lord. The Lord comes on that day. The day of the Lord is when the Lord comes and the church is raptured up. And that will not occur until after the apostasy and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So when you just read the text, all three of these expressions, the coming of the Lord, our gathering to Him, and the day of the Lord, all refer to the same event. It's very unnatural to try to insert a seven-year gap between verse 1 and verse 2. So on the surface, it seems like the rapture here, the gathering together to Him, occurs on the day of the Lord when the Lord Jesus Christ comes. He comes on that day. It's called the day of the Lord. That's when He comes. And that's when we're raptured. And all of that occurs at the end of the tribulation, after the Antichrist, after the apostasy. Those have to happen first. So that puts the rapture with the second coming. So just a reading of this passage, that's the normal way. Unless you're reading into it your preconceived idea of a pre-trib rapture, you really don't get it uh, from these verses. It, it seems to be an unnatural view. Okay, before we launch into this passage more, let me just uh, run back and quickly review for you uh, what we did back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 because Paul is dealing with the rapture there too. And just to quickly review with you some of my views, and I realize that people have differing views on this, but my view in 1 Thessalonians 4 if you look at this particular passage, uh, there seems to be nothing in the context of 1 Thessalonians to support that uh, verse 17, the meeting of the Lord in the air will be a pre-tribulational rapture. There's nothing in this context that says the rapture occurs before a future tribulation. Not a word. In 1 Thessalonians. In fact, if you read 1 Thessalonians, the only ones going through tribulation are the saints in the first century that Paul's writing the letter to. 
And there are a number of verses where he acknowledges that they received the Word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. He said they're enduring the same sufferings at the hand of their own countrymen. He says that they and Paul are, are experiencing affliction. So the only tribulation in the whole letter of 1 Thessalonians was the first century tribulation that the believers are going through. So the idea that this reference to being raptured, to being caught up together with them, I'm looking at verse 17, to meet them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, is pre-tribulation. There's nothing to support that particular idea in the context of 1 Thessalonians. Now you can hold that. Uh, Many do. But you're going to do it because you're bringing in these ideas from other passages. It's certainly not in this particular uh, passage. Notice also that, and I don't have it printed, but if you're in 1 Thessalonians 4, look at verse 18, because Paul there says, therefore comfort one another with these words. And so some pre-tribulationalists will say, comfort, that's a comfort, because you won't have to go through the tribulation. But again, there's, there's not, not a word about that in 1 Thessalonians. The comfort, as we know, back up in verse 13, is the concern they had that some of the, their friends and loved ones who had died in Christ are going to miss out on the glory of the second coming. And so what the Apostle Paul says, no, the dead are not going to miss out. In fact, they're going to be resurrected first. And then we'll be raptured to meet the Lord in the air. So the comfort has nothing to do with escaping a future tribulation period. It's the comfort of knowing that our dead in Christ will definitely participate in the glory when Christ comes back. So again, nothing to support a pre-tribulational view. And it's interesting that honest dispensationalists acknowledge that. Uh, even an honest dispensationalist like John MacArthur in his uh, MacArthur Study Bible said the time of the rapture cannot be conclusively determined from this passage alone. So he acknowledges there's nothing in the context to support a pre-trib rapture. Now he thinks other passages do support it, So you can deal with those separately, but there's nothing in this passage that conclusively supports a pre-trib rapture. And that was John MacArthur. Now notice also another word here in verse 17. If you remember this, for those of y'all who were here when we studied this, that word that we are caught up together with them in the clouds, we're caught up with the dead in Christ, they'll be resurrected, we'll be raptured up, we're caught up with the dead in Christ, to meet the Lord in the air. And that word meet, you remember I brought out and emphasized three Greek scholarly dictionaries that all agree that the word meet is a technical term for people, for example, the way it was used in the culture of the day, when, a, when an emperor or a king was coming to visit a city or some great dignitary the people of the city would leave the city and go out to meet the king or the emperor or the dignitary and then turn around and usher them back into the city. And I share with you, you can go back and listen to the message if you're interested, and I quoted and showed you the support of three Greek scholarly dictionaries that said the word meet is a technical term for that kind of meeting. Now, the pre-trib rapture view would have to say, no, we go, we go up and we meet the Lord in the air, and then the Lord turns around, and then we go back up to heaven for seven years. It's the exact opposite. But the word for meet is that we would go up and meet the Lord in the air, and then we become His entourage, and we turn around and escort Him, if you will, back down to earth. It's the people who go out and meet and then they turn around and they go back from where they started from. And that fits perfectly with a second coming rapture of the church. And these Greek scholars all agree, the three that I 
shared with you that this is a technical term for that kind of meeting the dignitary, the king, the emperor. They go out of the city, they meet him, and then they turn around and they escort and join him back into the city. That fits again with the rapture at the second coming. We go up and meet the Lord in the air, and then we come with the Lord back down to the earth. So that's a second coming. So actually, this word is a strong support for a post-trib rapture, not a pre-trib rapture, as many uh, would hold to. This is interesting because uh, this very same word is used in Acts chapter 28. You remember when the believers at Rome heard Paul is coming to Rome. So they left Rome and they traveled a number of miles to different little cities. One of them is called the Market of Apius and, and, and other little cities. And they met Paul. And then they turned around and escorted Paul into Rome. Very same idea. Again, that supports a post-trib rapture, not a pre-trib rapture of the church. So it's, uh, it's very appropriate that the language itself, uh, again, does not give any support for a pre-trib rapture where the Lord turns around and we all go back up to heaven. No, we turn around and escort Him back down to earth. But there's another interesting word, and that's in verse 15, the word coming. That's the Greek word parousia. The coming of the Lord. Parousia. There's another Greek scholar by the name of Adolf Deisman, and he wrote in a book, Light from the Ancient East, uh, on this particular word. And Adolf Deisman was another scholar who, who uh, spent most of his time studying the, the Koine Greek. Koine Greek is the common Greek of the common people. And that's what the New Testament is written in, Koine Greek. Adolf uh, Deisman studied this word parousia and he said that what that word commonly referred to is the coming of a king or an emperor or a dignitary into the city with great public fanfare and celebration. It would be like... Um, Someone coming with pomp and circumstance into the city. Uh, it would be a grand event. It would be a public event with impressive formal activities and ceremonies. And in Greece, whenever an emperor came into one of their cities, it would actually start uh, and inaugurate a new era. And they would celebrate it with sacrifices and they would, they would have special taxes to help fund the event. That city would even be given the right to coin their own coins, Advent coins as they call them, and they would even build monuments to celebrate the coming of this emperor into their city. So that the word parousia became a technical word, according to Adolf Deisman, of a very public, celebratory coming of a king into a city. Again, that fits with a second coming idea. It does not fit well with a pre-trib rapture because the coming of Christ, there is secret. He comes secretly in the cloud. No one sees Him. The church is raptured up to meet Him. The dead are raised first. But no one else is aware that Christ has come. This particular word for coming, however, according to Adolf Deisman, it's a very public event. It's not a secret private coming of Christ. It's not Jesus kind of sneaking in, taking the church, and then sneaking out. It's a very public, grand, pomp and circumstance kind of a celebration. Again, that fits with a second coming of Christ and not a pre-trib rapture coming of Christ. So it's interesting how the language that Paul has used was used in Koine Greek both the word coming and the word meet to refer to a concept that's consistent with the second coming of Christ. Now this word coming here in verse 15 is the very same word that Paul uses in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. So now to make a few comments about this. 
So Paul now in chapter 2 verse 1 says, Now we, uh, we request you, brethren, with, re- with regard to the parousia of our Lord, the coming of our Lord. Same one. Public, celebratory, all this great festivals, all this, all this uh, great uproar going on that the King has come. Not a, not a quiet, private, secret coming, but a very public, bold coming. Uh, with, a, with a lot of glory attached to it. That's the word that he's using. So it naturally it would seem to fit with the second coming of Christ. So when you look at this passage and then the reference to our gathering together to Him, uh, which would refer to the rapture, which already seems to support the second coming when we're gathered together to Him. Is there anything in the context of 2 Thessalonians in this passage to lend support to a pre-tribulational rapture. Okay. So now we're looking at 2 Thessalonians 2.1. Well, is there anything in the context to support that this gathering together with Christ occurs seven years before the second coming? Before the tribulation? Before the man of lawlessness? Before the apostasy? Well, let's go back and look at the preceding context of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And you remember we've studied this starting in verse 6. And this whole context is second coming, the second coming of Jesus Christ. So notice what he says in verse 6. For after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So the church is going through tribulation, they're going through afflictions. So Paul is now saying that when Christ comes back, He's going to afflict those who are afflicting you. So this is when they get their relief. It's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When? When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels and flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints. Reference to the rapture again on that day. So in chapter 1, what's the focal point? Is it a secret pre-trib coming of Jesus before the tribulation? No, it's clearly the second coming. The church gets its relief from its tribulation when Christ comes to give them relief and also to judge the enemies, to judge the unbelievers. It's at the same time that He judges the unbelievers. He deals out retribution to those who do not know God. They pay the penalty of eternal destruction. That's at the second coming. And what Paul is saying, that's when you church That's when you get relief from your tribulation and your affliction. It's when Christ comes and He gives you relief and He gives retribution to those who are afflicting you. That doesn't happen at a pre-trib rapture of the church. See, it's clearly a second coming. And the word relief there in verse 6 certainly suggests that that's the rapture. That's when they get relief from the affliction. But when? When Christ comes back to judge the unbelievers, the church, that's when they get their relief. That's when they're raptured up. No more suffering. No more affliction. And, and Christ will afflict their tormentors. So it all lines up so far with a second coming. Okay, so chapter 1 doesn't support any idea that would support a pre-tribulational coming of Jesus. Well, how about the following context of verse 1? Well, notice in verse 1 again, the word coming. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our rapture together to Him. So when Christ comes, that's when we are gathered to Him. That's when we're raptured up to Him when He comes. Now, when is that coming? Well, chapter 1, it's all second coming. So that's in the preceding context. It's all second coming. Well, how about in the following context? Well, look at verse 8. 2 Thessalonians 2.8. That when that lawless one will be revealed, that's the Antichrist, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of His mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of His 
coming. Both of those words are parousia. Same word. This is, so verse 8 is clearly second coming, right? Clearly. That's when Christ comes and He destroys the Antichrist. Second coming. So again, verse 1, which speaks of the coming of Christ and the rapture of the church to meet the Lord, is preceded by clear second coming teaching. It's followed clearly by second coming teaching. So where is the support to separate verse 1 out of the context and say now it refers to a secret hidden coming seven years before the second coming? Again, you can hold that position. Many do. I'm just asking where is the support in the context? Even the words themselves line up with a glorious conquering second coming when the king comes to earth, not a supposed pre-trib coming. Now there's one other thing, however, look at, in verse 1, look at that phrase, gathering together. That's the, the expression that Paul here uses for the rapture. Christ comes, we are gathered up to meet Him in the air. We're gathered together. Now this noun only occurs twice in the New Testament. The other occurrence is Hebrews 10.25, which is a different context. It deals with the saints gathering to worship on uh, during the week. So it's, it's used in a different context. So whenever you have a word like this, and it only occurs just very few times in the New Testament, to help understand the meaning of the word, we can look at the cognate words associated with it. For example, this is a noun, but let's look at the verbal form, see if we can gain any insights into this gathering together. And when you do that, you find that the Lord Jesus used the verbal form. And let's look at, it's uh, Matthew 24, verse 31. He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet, and will gather together His elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So now Jesus in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 uses the same word, only in a verbal form, to refer to our rapture, our being caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Now if you were with us in our First Thessalonians study, uh, in several of my messages I pointed out all the parallels between Paul's writing in 1 Thessalonians 4 and chapter 5 with the vocabulary of Jesus in Matthew 24. It's amazing the parallels. So that most scholars think that, okay, Paul in Thessalonians is basically just uh, reiterating what Jesus already taught in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse. And this would help to confirm that. The gathering together that Paul uses also occurs in Matthew 24. So Paul has Matthew 24 in his mind when he's writing 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Okay, well what do we learn about this gathering together that Paul uses because Jesus used it? Well, look at the context. Look at verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, And the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with with power and great glory. And He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet and they will will, uh, gather together His elect from the four winds. So when does the gathering together occur from the teaching of the Lord Jesus? Verse 29, what does it say? After the tribulation of those days. That's when we're gathered together. That's what Jesus taught. That's what Paul is teaching. Because all of his vocabulary is basically based on the teachings of Jesus. So after the tribulation of those days, a Son of Man will come. This is a second coming. And then the saints will be gathered together with Christ. It's all second coming. Now you can hold to a pre-trib rapture. Many do. Many godly people. Many, many good students of the Word of God do. But I'm just appealing to you to, to try to find where the evidence for that view is. Now we've been taught it. I was taught it. 
when the Lord saved me in 1972, the guy who discipled me took me to a Christian bookstore and he said, buy that Bible. And I bought it as a New American Standard. I've stuck with them ever since. And then the very next book that I ever remember buying was Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth, which is all about the pre-trib rapture. And that's, that was a view I held. I taught it for a period of time. But we have to ask ourselves, where is the support? Uh, I don't see any personally in Thessalonians, either 1st or 2nd Thessalonians. Again, many good and godly people hold that view, but you're going to have to look at their reasoning, their support, and at least John MacArthur says in 1st Thessalonians, you have to go elsewhere to find support. So, to kind of, and, and also just to add another comment of the Lord Jesus, earlier in the uh, Olivet Discourse, this is what Jesus said to His disciples. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of My name. And at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. So the tribulation, Paul references that with the coming of the man of lawlessness. The great apostasy, Paul references that. That's what Jesus predicted. But who is Jesus telling this to? His disciples. Now you can say, well, it's just a future generation of Jews. Well, okay, people hold that view. But he's talking to his disciples. They're on the Mount of Olives. His closest disciples are gathered to him. They become the the foundation for the church. And he's telling them what's going to happen to them. Again, you can hold that he's talking to a future generation of, of Jews. But Paul, about the, uh, the Lord Jesus is, is uh, certainly talking to His disciples. Peter was there. James was there. John was there. These are the very guys that He's telling them what the future of believers are going to be. So it seems like the Lord Jesus is actually uh, saying the church is going to go through the tribulation. Okay, to sum up then, uh, when, is the, when is our gathering together with the Lord? When does the rapture take place? It takes place at the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord is identified as the day of the Lord. When the day of the Lord comes, the unbelievers, they'll be judged suddenly. And the believers will be given their relief. And the unbelievers will be given retribution and judgment on the day of the Lord. That's when the Lord comes on that day and the saints are gathered up and raptured up to meet Him. And it's all at the second coming, seems to me. So, that's my opinion and my understanding of this passage. Now, all the other tribulation events we still got to work through when it comes to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So, that'll be interesting But I wanted to at least touch base quickly on just the timing of the rapture again since uh, it's an issue that many believers have differing opinions on. So to wrap it up, until Christ comes, whenever that is, what should be our attitude? How should we be waiting? Regardless of your view, whether you're pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath rapture, or post-trib rapture, There's all those different views. Regardless, how should we occupy until Christ comes? Well, the first thing that Paul is emphasizing is don't be alarmed. Don't be shaken by the future. Uh, The church was being shaken. They were being disturbed. They were being being, uh, unsettled in their minds because they had misinterpreted uh, the coming of the day of the Lord. They thought it had already come. So in general, don't be alarmed about the future. I think the church definitely will go through any future tribulation period. The intensity of that tribulation may vary around the globe. Who knows? But don't be alarmed. Face the future trusting in God and resolve to follow Christ no matter what comes upon us. Be faithful to the Lord. David says in Psalm 16, I have set the Lord continually before me 
And because He is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. So set the Lord before you. Live for Christ. Focus on Him. He'll give you all the grace you need to persevere through whatever may lie in the future. So don't be alarmed. Secondly, don't be deceived by, in this context, the false reports that the Lord has already come. So those who are full preterists in their view uh, need to be need to certainly uh, pay attention to what the Lord is saying through the Apostle Paul. Don't be deceived as if a spirit or a message or a letter from us as to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So don't be deceived. Now that can have several applications. Don't be deceived in the thinking that it's that you're confident it's so soon that you're going to start setting dates and you're going to start being idle and negligent because he's just he's going to be back just any moment so I'm just going to quit my job and all that kind of stuff. Don't be deceived in that regard. Part of the the challenge for all of us in, in interpreting prophecy it's just hard to, uh, to know for sure. And that's why there's so many different opinions because believers differ in all these things. But many have speculated on, well, the Antichrist surely is going to come within the next five years or something like that. And, and do not be deceived by trying to start setting dates for when the, the coming of the Lord is going to be. We simply do not know. And Jesus said, in the morning there will be a storm today for the sky is red and threatening. And he says, you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Why? Because it's difficult. It's hard. And even though things are looking like they're really, really bad and going in a di- different direction, who knows? They may turn around in the future. I mean, we just simply don't know. So don't be caught up in the guard of, of uh, trying to set a date or be absolutely confident that the Lord's going to come within so many years. It's interesting, Augustine, the great church father, thought that the Roman Empire, when it fell in the 5th century, it fell to make way for the Antichrist. So he missed it. Uh, Jonathan Edwards thought that the Antichrist would arrive in the year 1866. Jonathan Edwards missed it. There's been a lot of prognosticators and predictors uh, since then, and so far they've all missed it. So, who knows? It was difficult to understand the first coming of the Lord, the timing of His first coming, and Jesus says, you know, no one knows the, the day or the hour of His second coming. So don't be deceived in that regard. It may return. He may return soon. We don't know. But He may not return soon. So we just have to be very, very careful about that. A third thing I think we can learn is just to be ready. We don't know when He's going to come back, but live your life today ready for Him to come back. That's something that the Lord certainly emphasized a number of times in His parables and teachings. We all need to be watching and waiting and serving and laboring for the kingdom of God until He comes. Whether it's in our lifetime or not, I don't know. But it doesn't really matter in one regard because we're to live today watching, waiting, serving, advancing the kingdom of God, being faithful and diligent. And then whenever He comes back, we'll be found to be faithful, whenever that may be. But be ready. Uh, Jesus emphasized this, uh, for example, in His parable about the ten virgins. You remember that story? There were ten virgins... They're all waiting for the coming of the bridegroom. Five of them ran out of oil. The other five had plenty of oil in their lamps. So the five who ran out had to leave to go get some more oil. And when they left, here comes the bridegroom and they missed out because they were not ready. They were not waiting. They had become idle and and they weren't taking care of business in the spiritual realm. They were neglecting what they ought to have been paying more closer attention to. And so they drifted off and they were not ready and they missed out. The application is to keep 
oil in your lamp. Keep it burning, is, would be the idea. Keep it lighting. Be the light of the world with the Gospel of Christ. Live for Christ. Bring Christ into your, into your connections, your work. Be, be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Be anticipating His return. Be ready. And then you remember the parable that Jesus told on this, the parable of the talents. He brought three of His slaves. He gave one five talents. One, two, one, one. And the two, the one who had five and the one who had the two, were busy and industrious and productive. And when the Master came back, He praised them. He said, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And He rewarded them and put them in charge of many things and blessed them with great joy. But you remember that one slave that only had one talent. And what did he do with that talent? He just buried it. He didn't use it. He didn't invest it. He didn't work with it to try to multiply it. He just buried it. And when the master came back, he found out that that slave had been unfaithful, but rather idle. That slave lost his talent. It was given to another. And he was cast out into outer darkness. See, too often times we are all tempted to not live in the light of the glory of the coming of Jesus Christ. And we can forget about it. And we can forget about all that's been prophesied to happen. And our life can just be kind of mailed in with the world. We just become like the world. We have worldly interests, worldly ambitions, worldly desires. And those are the ones like this slave who just buried his talent. And what the Lord is exhorting the church is to be watchful, be waiting, be serving, be laboring, be investing in the kingdom of God with your life, your time, your resources. Be a servant that's productive. That's what He wants of us. And then finally, just to anticipate the future glory. One day Christ will come back. And when He comes back, He will separate the sheep from the goats. And then the King will say to the sheep, and I love this in Matthew 25, this is what one day Christ will say to His people. He'll say to His sheep, Come, you who are blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Won't that be incredible to hear the Lord's voice say, Come, inherit the kingdom which has been prepared from before the foundation of the world. Enter into your glory. Enter into your joy. And we need to keep that anticipation of that future glory in our heart. As much as Satan and the world and our own flesh wants to bury it and remove it and put it in the back closet, we need to fight to keep pulling that back up because it's sanctifying to think and know that Christ is coming back And when He comes back, then we enter into the glory that He has brought forth with Him and for us. So may the Lord help us to wait for the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord, when we'll be gathered together in His presence with great joy. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do want to thank You, Lord, for again uh, the opportunity to to, uh, study these very challenging and controversial passages dealing with the second coming and the rapture. And Lord, we know that uh, not all believers agree on these things and that's just the way it is. But Lord, we're thankful that we do agree that one day Christ is coming back. And we pray, Lord, that the Spirit of God would make that more of a a living reality within our day-to-day life. That though we strive to be faithful and diligent for the kingdom of God now, we have an eye on the future. That one day our Lord, our King, our Master will come back. And on that day, no matter what kind of tribulation or trials or afflictions we've had to endure, they will all end on that day. 
Our relief, our joy, our happiness in Your presence will be eternal. We'll be with You forever. There'll be no more mourning, no more crying, no more tears, no more curse, no more sin, no more death, but everlasting life in all of its glory. Lord, may we long for that day. And may we, by Your grace, be watching and waiting, looking for the return of the King. So help us to have that thought in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.